Greetings, friendlies. Welcome to Dharma PhD, conversations about the science, philosophy, and culture of mindfulness and secular Buddhism. I'm your host, Shannon M. Whitaker, joined once again by my fabulous co-host, Jeff Street. Welcome, Jeff. Hello. Did the listeners know what my middle initial is? Oh, I don't know if they do. Some of them do, for sure. Okay. Because some of them are people that know you. Mm-hmm. I don't know if in general... Well, listeners, I'll, I'll let you in on a secret. It's F. F is my middle is Jeff F Street. I invite your submissions for a t-shirt. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All the Fs. <laughs> what are we going to talk about in the podcast today? Ah, yes. Thanks for asking. Today's episode is a big deal for two yeah, reasons. For two reasons. Two reasons. So we finally come to the last in the series of six talks by John Peacock. Amazing. I know it's amazing. So we're really just the end of an era here. Whoever thought that we would make it this far. (laughs) The second exciting thing about Mm -hmm. this episode is that we're finally also getting to the thing that I am really excited about working on. So I have this Dharma PhD and independent PhD, and I jokingly say that it's four or five years of study and practice and discourse that will end in a book that no one will read. And we finally get to that topic, Okay. <laughs> the topic about which I want to write the book that no one will read. So today's podcast is on the same topic. Yeah. That you're okay. Yeah, we finally get there. Fantastic. Very excited. This is a two-hour talk. It's a very long talk. Okay. <laughs> so we're not going to cover all the material in there. It's a great talk, though, listeners. Please go and have a listen to the original talk. But as I was listening to the talk and as I heard him start to talk about this topic, one of the things that I also realized was I'm finally getting to the point in the independent PhD project where I'm transitioning from sort of the freshman stage where you're learning and absorbing and listening to other people's talks and doing all the research by reading other people's material. And I'm finally ready to start talking about my stuff, what I think is new and bring my own thing to it. Okay. That's a big step. Yeah. Transformation. So just to reiterate what we're talking about, we've been covering a series of six talks by John Peacock. The talks are titled, Buddhism Before the Theravada. And this is a series of talks from 2011. So I'm sure that John Peacock's ideas have grown since then. It's been 10 years, but it still for me has been a really good fundamental introduction to a lot of these topics. What we're going to talk about today is the same mm, broad topic that we've talked about the last two episodes. This concept, Paticca Samuppada, dependent origination, is the usual translation, although you won't be surprised to know I've found some others, but we're not going to... Are we going to talk about your favorite translation today? Not today. No, that'll be another time. (laughs) One of the things we've previously highlighted was how many varied ideas have come out of this single concept. I wrote a really big blog post about this. That's still out in the world. To prove the point, today we're going to talk about Paticca Samuppada in a new way. We're going to talk about it as a model of cognition. Okay. In this talk, actually, one of the participants asked, is this dependent origination a Buddhist model of mental processes? And John Peacock said, it's not entirely exhaustive because it can be broken down much finer. And then he didn't say this, but as I've been thinking about it, the, the difference, is it the difference? One way to think about how Gotama was teaching stuff, first of all, he wasn't a neuroscientist. He didn't have these kinds of techniques or the same understanding we do. 
but also he was mostly concerned with experience. He wasn't concerned with neurons or whatever was behind it. He wasn't worried about why the brain worked that way. He was just worried about how, what our experience was like. So the chunks are a little bit, mm, shall we say, bigger as far as the way that these mental processes are described. That's something I think is really important is to recognize that we're talking about subjective experience. We're not talking about neurons firing, but we can still talk about our mm, mental cognition in that way. And it can still be helpful and maybe more helpful sometimes than talking about neurons firing. That makes sense. We're dividing into a couple of different levels. Yeah, exactly. You can zoom in, you can zoom out, you can look at it through different lenses, so to speak. So this is just one particular lens and it's the lens of subjective experience and particularly subjective experience in order to flourish, in order to live a better life. The way you would say it if you were uh, a philosopher is you would say it's political or if you were if you were on the staff at Bodhi College, you'd say it's ethical. It's about how to live well. We're not just looking at how the brain functions out of intellectual curiosity. We want to know what is our experience like in order that we can live better. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In talking about these mental processes, the Buddhist model of cognition, okay. mm-hmm. we'll call it that, mm-hmm. they start off by saying you have a body and you have a mind. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I'm with you so far. <laughs> Reasonable. <laughs> So we have a body and a mind, and then we have senses. We have the regular senses, sight, smell, taste, touch, hearing, I might have, anyway, those, but also thoughts. The mind is also a sense modality. So Mm -hmm. if you have a thought, it affects the mind in the same way that a touch affects the skin. So So it's like an incoming uh, impulse or incoming. Right. Mm -hmm. It comes into the inbox. Yeah. Comes into the inbox. Exactly. We could go into a bunch of details on that, but I don't know that that's necessary for right now. Let's try quick and dirty. Okay. There's quick and dirty. So you have these senses and I really like the way that Lee Brasington phrases them. You hang your senses out in the environment. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Go troll it. It's a great phrase. Yeah. I love it. And those senses are then impacted by whatever's in the environment. If we were talking about, if we were talking about this in a technical term, we might say that there's a distal stimulus and that there's a physical process. So light waves bounce off of the shoe and then the light waves hit your eye, whatever. We have these senses, we hang them out in the environment. They come in contact with an object, their object, right? Eye has an eye object, Mm -hmm. ear has an ear object. They come into contact with those objects and, and the word that they actually use is contact. So we have a mind and a body, then these sense modalities, and then we have contact when those things engage with something in the world outside. Okay. Could be a fish, could be another thing. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it could be, I see a fish, it could be, I touch a fish, it could be, I taste a fish. Like Mm -hmm. it can be all these different- Smell a fish. Smell a fish. (laughs) Think about a fish. Okay. Wish for a fish. (laughs) Fishes were wishes. So, so all these things, all these, the various aspects of a fish come, come to the <laughs> inbox. Right. Okay. And you have, again, that contact. And then right after contact, you have this thing called Vedana, which you've heard me talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. Yeah. And this is where I get excited. This is the focus this here? This is the thing. So okay. I'm going to try to make sure to speak more slowly because I will get really I get a little up. riled up. I get a little riled up. Mm-hmm. And Vedana, this experience of hedonic tone or feeling tone, it's sometimes called, I like hedonic tone or just Vedana, 
Vedana has three flavors, I'm calling them. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Or they call it neither pleasant nor unpleasant, but it's kind of long, so a lot of people say neutral. Okay, so, so our inbox contains all the aspects of a fish. And like the taste... Let's pick one, though. Can we just pick one? Sure. Just for simplicity's sake. Pick yeah. an aspect of the fish that you'd like to oh, describe. Oh, I, I, I would like... Well, the one I'm wishing for right now. Let's... I feel like the sense ones, mm -hmm. I feel like I get how those work, but I feel like I don't know about the mind one. Okay. Uh, let's talk about that one. I actually am going to ask that you table that one for oh, right now, okay. Okay, because okay. I think talking about why thoughts are a sense modality and why mm -hmm. I think that's actually helpful will derail us from the topic okay. let's for go today. Through, let's go through a sense one. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Well, so the taste of a fish is the part that I want to have okay. right now. <laughs> okay. So we have a, the taste of the fish. It gets on the tongue and there's the taste. And then we have this Vedana and it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. We could call it neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Yeah. Okay. And these John are the Peacock, three values. These are the three have, values. Yeah. Vedana could have. Yeah. And it's not a one, two, three. It's not a, it's you know, from super, super pleasant all the way down through, okay, well, now I don't even know this at all. And then all the way starts getting bad and it's really bad. Yeah, it's a total spectrum. It's a total spectrum. From okay. one very extreme pleasantness to one very extreme unpleasantness. So these these three, pleasant, unpleasant, or, or neither, is it like a linear thing? So like pleasantness might go from negative to positive or something. But it seems like neither suggest that maybe there's several other dimensions mm. as Oh, well. that's interesting. I think it's more linear and I think okay. neither is as things get less pleasant, we pay less attention to them. Somewhere in the middle. And then they fade out and they just don't even get through okay. sometimes our subconscious, right? All the things that are happening in our peripheral vision, for example, yeah. that our mind is processing that we, from a subjective experience standpoint, it never even gets through to consciousness until okay. I say, what does the sole of your left foot feel like? Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh yeah, okay. It's kind of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, but maybe it's a little bit pleasant. Like this, maybe it's not bad. It's touching the carpet. It's, it's, nice, yeah, it's a nice, it's, clean, it's yeah. a nice warm carpet. Yeah. Right. It. Mm -hmm. But, but it's not a, it's not a large degree of pleasantness. Right. It's not dominating my experience right yes, now. Yes. Yes. And then you can also continue moving down the spectrum, um, down, you can moving towards unpleasantness where it's a okay. little bit unpleasant, but you don't, you know, that like nagging, thing in my lower back. I don't really notice it until it gets very bad. And then I notice it. And then okay. it's very unpleasant. So the neither is sort of a space where we don't even pay attention. Okay. Um, it doesn't even come into consciousness a lot of times. It stays subconscious or unconscious in our experience. Does that make sense? So I'm eating a fish and it might be delicious. <laughs> it might be terrible. Or you might not notice that you're eating. Or I might be more focused on the conversation. That's yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that raises an interesting point, though, because there are a couple ways to eat a fish. One way is to eat a fish in a space with no other stimuli mm -hmm. uh, happening mm -hmm. at all, yep. in my experience. So this is the only one, and then it falls somewhere on this spectrum. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case most of the time. Most of the time you're receiving really a lot of stimuli. Mm -hmm. And so they get sorted, maybe. Like, maybe we're having a very nice conversation, but uh, listeners, maybe, maybe, maybe we're eating fish right now. You don't know. <laughs> But we're maybe more focused on the podcast right. than, than we are on the eating fish. We need the- Our you know, listeners the, may be eating fish right now and listening fish. to the podcast. Let's hope they're more focused on the podcast <laughs> and that they're eating delicious fish. But it might be that you have a few uh, sensory inputs. Yeah. And, and one might be dominating another one. Absolutely. So we're eating a fish. It's either pleasant, neutral, 
unpleasant. Yeah. And okay. I kind of like how you said pleasant, neither or unpleasant. Neither. Okay. I might, I think I'm going to try and use neither. We'll see. I don't know. It might not work, but I'm going to try it for now. Okay. Let's stick with neither. Neither. Yep. Okay. So I, so I've got this part. I'm, I'm with you. For the purposes of moving forward, shall we pick the fade in the value, I guess, that this fish has? Um, is that useful? Let's, let's keep it open and then we can okay. play around with it in the mm-hmm, next step. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have a mind and a body. We have these senses hanging out in the breeze. We brush one of them up against a fish. In this case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we have this Vedana. Yep. And I'm saying it Vedana because it's a long A. Everybody says Vedana, but technically Vedana. it's Vedana. That's right. Exactly. Um, this hedonic tone, which is of three parts. and Sorry, of three parts or having three possible having three, values? Having three flavors, yes. Well, not, not really, though. Mm. Just coming back to the continuum. Mm-hmm. It's not three possible values. Yes, you're it's right. Three, three, yes. Th- these values are for convenience. Yes. Because we have not established like a scientific scale. Yes, that's true. Okay. Yeah. But some continuum in there. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm pushing on this a little bit just to make sure I understand it. Yeah, absolutely. And well. I think it's okay. really important because we this this is this is how cognition works. We put things in boxes, but it's important to recognize experience is not the same thing as language. This may be my second independent PhD, talking about how language and experience are not the same thing, that we fall into that trap all the time. It seems like one of those paradoxes of, of language. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Does Vedna have a kind of a scale okay. from negative one mm-hmm. to one? Okay. Or negative 100% to positive 100%. Okay. Is Vedna the kind of thing that that's an appropriate model for? Or... Is it like, that's a limited continuum. There's a, a maximum negative value, maximum positive value, and it can take on any value in between. Yeah. Is Vedana, though, maybe more like an infinite line mm. where you could have positive a million percent? Like, this is a really good fish. <laughs> this fish is blowing my mind. Like that kind of thing. And then yeah. it could be that later on you have another fish that's like positive two million percent. You didn't even know that was a thing that could happen. <laughs> Because that kind of matches my experience, my, my fish experience a little bit. <laughs> well, here, here's what I'll say. Maybe this is not useful. Well, the reason I think it might not be useful is because it might be getting into neuroscience where we say, well, how much pleasure, how much dopamine can you get into mm, your brain at any okay. one time? Okay. Maybe there is a maximum amount. Maybe the way that the brain is structured, there's a maximum amount of dopamine that can be processed at any one time. And that might be 100% positive. Okay. I'm guessing here. And maybe dopamine means the wrong chemical and people are slapping themselves in the forehead saying she should know better. But that's the kind of thing. Maybe it's true. Maybe get saturated by, somewhere. Yeah. Maybe there's a saturation point at which we cannot experience greater pleasure. That's my guess. Okay. That is, in fact, the case. We probably have a saturation point for our processing ability. Until you put butter on the fish. <laughs> And a little, little bit of lemon juice, mm-hmm. a little squeeze of lemon mm-hmm. on there. Okay, so it is possible to go to a million percent. I thought so. Okay, we can move on to the next thing. I'm poking and prodding here a little bit of just to, to understand it. Yeah, no, it's great. That's what it's for. Also, I'm learning a bunch talking to you about it. I really appreciate that. I really think so. Yeah. So we have this, we have this Vedana that occurs after contact. And then what happens, depending on which of the lists you look at, Lists of, Lists of models of cognition, depending on which one you, because different traditions have different models of cognition that overlap a little bit. and Like lists of senses? Not senses, but does avidya come, does that cognitive bias, does it come before the body? 
Does it come after the items that I'm telling you? Sometimes they're on some lists. Sometimes they're not on some lists. Actually, let me find the quote. Peacock does say in here, he says, as I always say, if it's Buddhist, it's got to be a list. (laughs) That matches my experience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Listeners write in if you would like to see this on a (laughs) t-shirt. So depending on which list you're looking at, the next step after Vedana is liking or disliking. So we have a we have a sense, we have mm-hmm. a Vedana, and then we either like it or we dislike it. Yes. One of the things that's really interesting about that point, this liking and disliking, some of our listeners may be thinking, what? And the Pali word I'm referring to here is anuroda, if you're interested in that. This is not a word that is often considered in these lists, at least in the Theravadan tradition that I am familiar with. But if I look at my personal experience, it's not often easy to tell when there's pleasant or unpleasant hedonic tone, but it's pretty obvious when I like and dislike things. Okay. For, for me, it's much more obvious when I like a thing. I can feel liking. Hedonic tone is very fast. Okay. It's not a thing that lingers at all. The way Akinchino Weber talks about it, he says it's the ooh or the mmm in your mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. And it's only associated with the stimulus. So the moment the stimulus stops... If you're still feeling something, that's not Vedana anymore. That's like a memory of it that you're okay. carrying. That's okay. the, liking the liking or the disliking. the disliking. Yeah, or you're thinking about the thing. Now I'm thinking about the fish. I don't like fish. I had a bad fish once. I'm done with fish. <laughs> right. That kind of thing. Yeah. Now you're no longer working with the stimulus of the particular fish. Now you're working with something else. Is this liking or disliking a binary thing, one or zero, or is it a scale as well? I really dislike fish interesting that you ask. It is not talked about very much in the Buddhism with which I am familiar. And I think that's super interesting. I googled Anuroda, this word, this Pali word, in Google Scholar, Mm -hmm. and it only brought back five pages worth of results. Whoa. That's an impossibly small number. I know. Five pages. Still. Five pages. Yeah. And and the fifth page wasn't full. It was like two two items on the fifth page. Hmm. That's very, that's 50 things or something. That's nothing... In scholarship, yeah. Yeah, so I was super surprised by this. Is there like an alternative spelling? (laughs) It seems like maybe it's that kind of thing. (laughs) I'm curious about why it hasn't been explored more. I'm curious about Mm. why it hasn't come up in the literature, in the, you know, they had 2,500 years to write about this and they've chosen not to. What's that all about? There are other concepts that are are not present in Buddhist teaching, like grief isn't really in there. Fear isn't really in there. So, so there's, it's not the only thing that, that feels strangely absent, but that's for another talk. Do you have any, do you have any questions about liking and disliking before we move so on? Quick, quick recap. We have a sense, we have a Vedana. We have a mind and body. We have senses. Yes. Go. All right. So the mind and body, mm-hmm. these receive input from the senses. Those arrive to the inbox and we have a Vedana. We have a hedonic tone. Yes. And that's an instantaneous thing. Yep. While the, the sense input is happening. Yes. <clears throat> and then we form... Uh, a liking or a disliking, yes, which is a more abiding sort of yes. uh, sensation or memory, mm-hmm. and and that brings us up to where we are. Correct. In the now process. we're yes, okay. And for our listeners, liking and disliking, think chitta. That's all I'm gonna say about that. Moving on. So the next step after liking, disliking, or after hedonic tone, if you don't want to think about liking and disliking because it's not in your list, that's fine. <laughs> Put it to the side. The next step is a Pali word, tanha. And it is often translated as thirst or craving. Mm. 
But something that Peacock says, he says the word tanha isn't just thirst, like, oh, I'm thirsty. Let me let me get my water bottle and fix this problem. The way that Peacock says it is this concept of tanha has immense pathos in it. I need fish. Yeah, it's craving that is insatiable. I need all the fish. Have you ever experienced, okay, I experienced this. I don't have an off switch for Indian food. (laughs) Oh, okay. I will sit down to a buffet and eat until I'm physically uncomfortable or- Food baby level. Yeah, but bad food baby. I'll also do this with, yeah, I'll also do this with sour candies. Ooh, like a Sour Patch Kid. Yeah, but I'll eat so many that my teeth hurt. Where you you put it in your mouth and before you've even swallowed it, you're already reaching for the second mm-hmm, one. And mm-hmm. that kind of insatiable craving. Well, let me ask you though, is the is the amount of craving also on a scale? Because not everyone has a craving for fish. Some people <laughs> No, no, no. It's not, not a craving for everything. We're talking about a model of cognition. So you have an experience, you like a thing, and now you're craving it. And this craving is, isn't is just, I'll have a little bit and it'll be fine. It's, I need more and I need more and I need more. Fish may not be the most... <laughs> I don't know. Something like sugar is a lot maybe more appropriate because we many of us have had this experience of eating sugar until we're sick. Sure, yeah. Or eating sugar even though we know it's not good for us. Particularly in those formations of quote-unquote addictions... Mm-hmm. that is where you really start to see this kind of craving. And okay. I really like Judson Brewer's definition of addiction, which is continued use despite adverse consequences. Okay. So I know sugar is not good for me. I know it's ruining my teeth. I know it's going to have ill effects on my health. I continue to consume it at quantities above what is helpful. Do things like alcohol and tobacco yes. and, and other drugs fall yeah. into this? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So we've reached a place in the model of cognition where all things we could say that our mind is conscious of mm-hmm. have, have followed the pathway so far. We have a mind mm-hmm. and body and then some sense mm-hmm. gives an input, mm-hmm. a vedana, mm-hmm. a liking or disliking, mm-hmm. but not everything gives us a craving. Yes, you're absolutely right. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, for example, the things that give us, that give us a neutral mm-hmm. or a neither mm-hmm. a vedana value, yep. then would also give us a neutral or a neither liking or disliking value. Mm-hmm. We would neither like nor dislike. Right. We'd just ignore, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then would not... We wouldn't fall into the craving loop. The things that had a neither or maybe a negative liking or disliking value would not give us a craving. And if we dislike, we can also crave to get rid of. The experience that comes to mind is like being in a meeting at the office and the person that is talking is just, and I just want it to stop. And I want to stop really hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So we can also crave to get rid of. Casting about for an excuse to leave. A, a, an anti-addictive, whatever the opposite of addiction is, is, you know, now, okay, I'm thinking about, I don't want to go into the office because I don't want to hear that person talk, you know, and when we develop these unskillful habit patterns where we start to crave to get rid of something, mm. even though the thing isn't there, we're craving to get rid of it. Maybe. A revulsion, yeah, that's a, that's a really good term. And anti-craving also. Anti-craving. <laughs> so the next step in the model after the craving mm-hmm. is- Optional, gra- optional craving. Optional craving is grasping. So we crave a thing. It's one thing to want a thing. It's another thing to actually go after it, to pursue it, to grasp the fish. Right. And this grasping 
This grasping can both happen to things we don't have, so I pursue an object that I don't have, but it can also happen to things that we already have. So I Never when, let this fish go. <laughs> right. I want my cake and I want to eat it too, but I also want to have it. A canonical example might be, I have this really beautiful china and I never eat on it because I mm. don't want anything bad to happen mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. And then I get some other nice china to, to use, but then I'm like, that's pretty nice too. So I end up eating on paper plates, even though I have three sets of nice china in the cupboard because I'm grasping after what I have. So we can both grasp for things we don't have and we can grasp for what we do have, but we want to protect somehow. Okay. And keep unchanging. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. I've, I've experienced this. Yeah. It's nice to have a have one one scratch on everything. Yeah. Then it's a little... <laughs> Get stuff know. from Craigslist. It's already scratched when it shows up. <laughs> yeah. It's a liberating kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And so the thing that you're liberated from is from the grasping. A little bit. Yeah. It can okay. be. So the Pali word for this grasping is upadana. And what Peacock says about it in this talk is that this is the crux, he says, this tanha upadana, he says them almost hyphenated. This is where where the trouble is. It's where things are really happening. This transition from craving to grasping is where we get into trouble. And it's also, from a Buddhist perspective, where we can be liberated, where we can get out of trouble, mm. where we can get the wedge in. Mm-hmm. You had talked earlier about some things lead us to, to craving and some things don't. But this place between craving and grasping, just because this is something that I did not understand until my 30s. <laughs> just because I want something doesn't mean I have to go get it. Okay. Wanting, craving, to use the same language throughout, is just, is just craving. It's just a feeling. You know, I was talking with a friend, my friend Evan, and he was saying that he likes to be hungry. Yeah. Sometimes. I do too. Like, not in a formal fasting way. It didn't, I didn't have the sense that he had, mm. a, had a particular program of this schedule of eating. But he said that he liked to experience this feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it reminds him that that's an okay state of affairs. Yeah. It's okay to be hungry. You do not need to go eat right now. You yeah. will be fine. Your body will be fine for several days. <laughs> yeah. Remember we said at the very beginning, we're talking about subjective experience and we're talking about how do we live well. That's the point of all of this. It's not just to give you another list of things to memorize or learn. I know that's what you think. You're, he's nodding it's and sure, winking it at sure me. It sure does seem like the Buddhists are into lists. <laughs> the point of this exploration is to be able to recognize, oh, I'm in this state. And of course, as we said earlier, this is a spectrum. It's not one thing and then another thing. It's we roll through these different states. But at any point, basically after Vedana, because Vedana is kind of automatic and over long terms, we can probably change our hedonic tone, but not in the moment. It, it happens unconsciously. But from any point from liking on, we can get the wedge in. The, the, the metaphor I came up with was Oreos because this person has a weakness. Strong, strong craving. <laughs> a weakness for Oreos. So... I see a picture of an Oreo on an advertisement and I think I want Oreos, right? Like the craving happens mm-hmm. and then the grasping is actually getting up and getting in the car and going to the grocery getting to store, the Oreos. right? And getting to the Oreos and buying them and putting them in my mouth. At any point along that trajectory, I have the ability to stop this at the point of seeing the ad and feeling the desire arise. I can say like, Oh, right. There's the Oreos again. <laughs> I suspect that a lot of people may not experience that as a conscious 
they may not have the experience. Maybe many of our listeners are, are people that are um, students of, of this process and, and, mm-hmm. and agree. But I would, I would guess that most people, myself included largely, don't feel like this is a thing that is consciously available to us. Yeah. Or maybe not consciously, but, but available in any case. Yeah, absolutely. And it probably isn't when we're not paying attention. It's just mm-hmm. habit. It's that, that sankara, right? That habit pattern of want thing, go pursue thing, get thing, put thing in mouth. Yeah. But the thing I was going to say is if we become aware, if we become aware at any stage in that process, we can get the wedge in. So if mm. at liking, if I see the ad and I find, Ooh, Oreos. Like oh, Oreo. okay. That, nope. That was an advertising agency doing a great job of triggering my craving. And I'm just going to put that down. Like I'm uncomfortable right now because my body is telling me to go get Oreos, but this will pass. Tell me more about this. So you have a, you have a, you have a, a Vedna, positive Oreo Vedna, <laughs> and then you have an Oreo liking and. Technically I have an idea of an Oreo. I don't actually have the Oreo in my mouth. Mm-hmm. I have an idea of an Oreo. Oh, and then sorry. I like that. So you didn't get like a, the taste of an Oreo. Right. What you got was the idea of an Oreo. Right. Someone handed you the idea, an advertising agency. They said, right. hey, there's a good idea. <laughs> Yeah. Oreos. Yeah. And you know you have a good product if all you have to do is say the name of that product. <laughs> and then I start salivating. Yeah. Totally. Like Pavlov's pets. Totally. So you have this idea, idea of Oreo, mm-hmm. positive Oreo Vedna, mm-hmm. and you're using this phrase, get the wedge in. Yeah. Tell me more about what that means in practice. So. Like what are the, what are the verbs? Okay. Knowing I am having a craving for Oreos. Having a conscious. Yeah. Recognizing like. Ah, I see. Ah, I'm having you, a craving for Oreos. You sit back from your mental processes a little bit. You say, a little ah, bit. Here, here it comes down the pipe. Yep. There, there's a craving for Oreo. I, <laughs> right. I, I see it over there, the Vedna. Mm-hmm. I, I can here's feel it. The, here. oh, here's the liking. Yeah. Getting a little more closer. And I don't... Trouble. For, the thing I was saying earlier is Vedana, it's not easy to catch Vedana because it's so fast. Mm. But liking usually, because it lingers a bit, is typically where I would notice. And particularly in craving. I often don't notice this until I hit craving. I don't know if this would be an interesting example or not. I was biking home from school when we were in Baltimore. I was biking home from art school. So I've been in art school all day. Yeah. It was 4.30 in the afternoon. It was a sunny day. I was bicycling home and there's a huge advertisement for Jameson whiskey by the freeway there as you're coming down. Yeah. I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember this ad. And I, I came down the hill and I looked up 4.30 in the afternoon on Tuesday and there's this enormous bottle of Jameson. And I thought, yeah, a glass of Jameson would be really nice right now. And then I realized... Ah, okay. I don't want a glass of whiskey right now. These advertising agencies have put this thing into my brain. I, I do like a glass of whiskey. You, know, you like a glass of whiskey. And what arose was the craving for whiskey. And if I had been mindless, if I hadn't have realized, one, if I hadn't been paying attention, and two, if I didn't understand how my mind worked, if I didn't have these models to frame my cognitive processes, I would have thought, oh my gosh, I need a, a glass Let's of whiskey. Let's some whiskey. I would have bicycled. There were three bars on the way home. I could have stopped at any one of them Mm -hmm. and had one or several glasses of whiskey before I came home. But instead, I was able to say, ah, the craving has arisen. It is because of this condition. They have put this enormous bottle in front of me and my brain doesn't know the difference between seeing a bottle of whiskey and seeing a picture of a bottle of whiskey. My brain thinks it's the same thing. And now the craving has arisen. Okay. And... I know from my own experience, because I've been practicing with letting go of these things, if I just wait, this craving will go away. Now, I want to say that there are some things for which cravings do not go away. And I'm not trying to say that like mindfulness cures everything. 
That is not what I'm trying to say. I am, however, saying that in, in lots of cases, a little bit of hunger, a craving for Oreos. I like Oreos better than whiskey because it has a little bit less of, a, of an edge to it. When I say get the well, it wedge in... It doesn't have a physical addictive quality either. False. Sugar is more addictive than cocaine to the brain. Interesting. Okay. Because sugar is what the brain eats. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't. I knew it ate sugar, but I didn't know that it was, yeah. had this addictive property. Yeah. I will try to find the paper in which, um, from which my understanding comes from, and I will try to put it in the show notes, but I don't remember off the top of my head. But I do remember having read studies where they compared, it was in rats, it was not in humans, addictive qualities of cocaine versus sugar, and sugar wins. Because it is so addictive. So you have these so you have these cravings and there are like some different techniques to deal with them. Yeah. And one of the techniques is go get the thing. Yes. I used to have this poster because this is the person I was as a young person. I had a poster that said the only way to get rid of desire is to yield to it. Mm-hmm. That's how I lived for thirty years. Sure, many people do, I'm sure. Yeah. 30, 38. Let me ask you, let me ask you this. So I just went to cycling. Yes. And this was not a particularly long uh, ride, but sometimes it go for, for really long. This was not a particularly long ride for you, listeners. It was only two hours. I went two hours. I went 50, 58 kilometers or something yeah. like that. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. It wasn't a particularly long ride for me, but sometimes I'll go for much longer rides mm-hmm. and I'll get to the end of the ride or sometimes during mm-hmm. and I'll experience, I'll experience, I'm not going to use any of the technical words that we've just used now. I'm going to, I'm going to add tell yeah. you my experience then then you might tell me yeah 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 which that's a which great are idea. the ones that i'm yeah totally so so i'll get i'll get hungry yes I'll get to the end of the ride and i'll say i'm very hungry yes and how does that fit with yes. the, the model the that's list a, that we've just described great question so here's what i understand today this is my understanding right now to answer your question there is a difference between what is called hedonic hunger and physiological hunger Physiological hunger is when your body needs calories or protein. Give me or all the calories. It needs the things that you need. You know, it needs the nutrients, whatever the nutrients are. That is physiological hunger. So in a long ride, all like today's ride was about a 2,000 calorie ride. But other rides would be three or 4,000 calories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So on those rides, your body actually does need those nutrients. It doesn't need like I'm going to die need, but your body knows, hey, we just depleted a lot and we need to refill the tank. So that same, is... Same for water. Yeah, might, might absolutely for water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... The answer is the thing you're feeling is physiological hunger, in which case it's probably a good idea to succumb to that, to, to put food in the tank. In this case, it's fairly straightforward to, to know that because you'll you just, remember, right. oh, I just did a bunch of exercise. Exactly. The kind of thing that gives you. Right. As opposed to hedonic hunger, which is I'm feeling grumpy and I know that if I eat something with sugar in it, that I'll feel better because that's happened before. So I'm just going to go and eat some sugar so that I feel better so that I can function through this meeting. Like a, like a soothing eating. Yeah, like soothing a, eating. Like, yeah. A, like an eating that addresses different, different Emotions things. as opposed to food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the ways that I've heard this expressed really well, again, this was by Kinchina Weber at that retreat that I'm always talking about. He said, there's a difference between needs and wants. And it's not always clear what the difference is because our wants masquerade as needs and our needs, if not met, will often go deep underground and come out as weird Freudian expressions. So it's not always clear which one is which, but the way that he explained it, which I found really helpful, a way to think about it is wants, if they are ignored and not satisfied, they go away. If I want that shiny green purse from Zara, 
If I wait maybe a day, maybe a week, certainly in six months, I will not remember that bag. And probably if you show it to me, I won't want it anyway. Wants go away over time. Needs don't go away. Not really buying this because if you take, if you take like hunger, for example, Mm -hmm. which one physiological or physiological. Okay. Say you haven't done massive exercise. Yeah. Say, say you've just been going through your life and it gets to be dinner time. And so you're feeling a little hungry. Yeah. But if you, if you choose not to eat, my experience of that maybe level of hunger Mm -hmm. is that you'll, you'll be hungry for a while. Yes. And then if you, you know, sometimes I'll be working on something and, and forget to eat. Yes. And what that means is, I was feeling a little bit hungry and I was like, nah, I don't have time to yep. do a thing. And, and then it'll, it'll just go away until maybe the next meal time, and then it'll come up again. Yes. And, and I think there's an argument that there's that there are two aspects to that kind of hunger. There's a physiological one. You do mm-hmm. need to keep feeding your body. Yeah. But it's not an urgent. Right. It's not an urgent thing. Right. You're not gonna you're not gonna die or experience lasting harm. Yes. And then, and then there's a, a desire, like, well, this, this is habit we're in. Yep. Every day at this time, we have food. All right, great. It's time. Let's go. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But like you said, if you don't respond to that want, it goes away. And that is how you know, okay, by need, I mean a thing that, that we will be harmed if we do not get the thing. So you're making the case that with this kind of like a daily one, one meal hunger, that there's a large component of want and a small component of need yes. to that. And then as you ignore it, the, the wanting bit stays the same ish and the needing bit goes up because your body will say no 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 for real this time yeah your wanting actually goes down for a while and then it comes back because again our bodies are cyclical make a graph over time Mm -hmm. yeah the reason that we get hungry at certain periods of time is because we trained our bodies for that and so our circadian rhythms we have these chemicals that get released and they cue us to be hungry because that's the time that we normally eat so yeah so the wanting goes up and then also falls off again but yes over time the need would get more and more right like my understanding of people who do long fasts, I do 24-hour fasts and would like to try longer ones, but haven't yet. My understanding is after you're very hungry on day two and day three, and then on day four, you're fine. Hmm. But then d- depending on all kinds of physiological things, whether or not you're taking vitamins, blah, 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 blah. After a certain period, I'm sure it gets to the point where it's like, you need to eat. Mm-hmm. Your body is you know, starting to digest itself. This is a problem, et cetera. But yeah, those, I think that I'm in agreement with everything you've said, which is that we have that want for, for, for a normally scheduled meal. The want arises if we sit it out, if we are doing, let's say, a 24-hour fast, that want fades away, whether it's because we're busy or because we've just made it, we're being mindful and we're making a decision not to eat at this time. But then, yes, of course, over time, the need is going to ramp up and it's going to say, like, hey, you really need to eat. Yeah. Okay. So any, any particular thing can have a component of needing and wanting. Yes. Like a, like a, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So we were talking about getting the wedge in. And one of the things I wanted to say is that basically anywhere from liking, or if you notice it back at hedonic tone, even earlier, if you know that certain stimuli create cravings. Yeah, you have a watch out for Oreos. You, yeah, you if you don't go to... Maybe at some point there was a line at the grocery store you could go down that didn't have candy in it. And didn't have porn mm, magazines. Didn't have, and so you could just there was a, like a line that you go like to that didn't have that stuff. Line. Yeah, but you can make choices about. Th- this is a big thing in some addiction programs where they say like try to avoid the things that trigger you. Now that doesn't work forever because especially with things like cigarettes, if your trigger was having a cup of coffee for breakfast, it's kind of hard to avoid coffee, especially in Seattle. <laughs> it's a lot of coffee around. <laughs> a lot of coffee around, but it can help. 
Especially to, if you're if you're making a like a transition, if you're trying to trying right. to get started. Yes, exactly. Move from a steady state to a different state. Yeah. You can you can change your routine. Yeah. Certainly changing the routine, removing some of those triggers, especially if there are specific triggers that do things that are easy to remove, right? That turning off the light switch once we get the trigger and all that stuff. Anywhere along in that line, it's okay to get the wedge in. And I think this is really important to remember because let's say see the picture of the Oreo. I have the thought about the Oreo. I like it. I want it. I get up. I drive to the grocery store. I reach out and I touch the bag with my hand. It is not too late if I wake up in that moment to realize this is not good for me. This craving came from an ad agency. (laughs) It is okay when the third cookie is in my mouth to say, Oh, I see what's happened. Okay, Mm -hmm. I need to put these down. I think the trouble that sometimes I get into, and I think other people get into it, is that we kind of feel like, to heck with it. I'm this far along. I might as well eat the whole bag. Or there's there's no stopping it now. Right, yeah. It's too late. I'm already there. But The avalanche is coming down the mountain. Right, but actually, it's not an avalanche. It's a box of Oreos. And it's okay to walk down the hallway and give them to your friend or whatever. It's... It is okay at any point from liking all the way through to stop and, it's, and, and to it's, let it go. It's valid, you're saying, to say, you know what? I have eaten every one of these Oreos and I'm down to the last one in the box. And, and this is an okay time to say, you know what? I'm going to put it down. Yep. And if we don't get, if, even if we get all the way through the whole box and wake up afterwards, it's still okay. This is a thing that Judson Brewer's program is really good at, I think, because we can look back on the experience and say, ah, how did it happen? Where did I get triggered? What was the process of getting into the craving? What was the process of the grasping? How did I get there? Are there things I can do in the future next time? Blah, blah, blah. You know, this is interesting because we're, we're talking in a way so far in the conversation yeah, as though we're outside observers mm-hmm. of our mental processes. Mm-hmm. And I find that for me, that is not often the case. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I feel like mental processes happen to me yeah, rather than by my consent or with my involvement, but r- rather I often feel that they act upon me. Yes. And so I don't feel like the idea of, oh, and now I will. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> in, idealized. I, you know, I feel like I understand the the model that we're talking about, mm-hmm. different the different steps, and, and I feel like it matches my experience to a degree. But but I feel like uh, it's still it's still a little remote for me. Yeah, because the, the process of, of of choosing to interrupt that flow that's a that's a thing that I'm not I'm not very familiar with. Yeah, absolutely, and you're not wrong to feel that way. Even with mindfulness practice, even being a person who's into contemplative stuff. When you're inside of anger, you can be like, ah, I am anger. There is anger happening. Anger is around and it doesn't like it's still anger. When you have the anger glasses on, it's hard one to take them off. Sometimes they they don't come off on their own. They have to just you have to just wait it out. What do I want to say here? I want to say, yes, you are absolutely right. The problem with having minds is that we are inside of our own minds. And so our experience is colored by these emotions and by these cravings. And yet there is a way out is the thing I would say. And that is the part where Peacock was saying like, this is the crux. This is where we can make changes. 
there's a lot of different philosophies about how to do that. It's pretty clear the one I'm into. What I will say is you're absolutely right that it is very easy to be lost in our experience, but I will also say it is possible from being in an experience of an emotion or of a craving to still be aware and to still have, what's the term, ego functioning or like your frontal lobe online. <laughs> like it is possible to be inside of anger, to be angry, and also to say like, I'm very angry right now. To kind of have a, a, an external perspective to yeah. it. A little Obser bit. Observing oneself. Yeah, there's a little bit of an observation and that, and it's painful and and yet, knowing that is on the spectrum moving towards this place of being mindful is not about being distanced from experience. Some people think, oh, I'm just mm -hmm. going to be a cold, unthinking, uncaring automaton. Mm -hmm. Hovering in a field somewhere. Hovering in a field, right, in full lotus. In my opinion, that is, not in my opinion, that is not my goal. That is not what I am pointed to, and that is not dare I say it, the Dharma I teach. My experience is to help myself and others become more sensitive to what is happening so that from inside of anger, I can know, ah. I'm really in it now. I'm you're, super you're, in it right now. Feeling. Yeah, I think the other day, the other day, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I was like crying on the couch about, about something and I said, you know, for somebody who's a philosopher of human flourishing, I sure do cry a lot. <laughs> and then we both laughed as I was still crying. And I was really sad. I was afraid I had chosen the wrong path for my life and that what I was doing was not going to help or make a difference. And I was wasting my time and I should go get a job and I had chosen wrong. I was saturated in that. And yet I was able to see like, Hey, dude, <laughs> you're really in this thing right now and it hurts and it's so uncomfortable, but it will pass. And did you, and did you say to yourself something like, yeah, these are, these are big questions. Yeah. This is a thing to think about. Yes. And, and I was, and yet, and yet this overwhelming sadness is maybe not a thing that's helping me to do that. So let's, let's go through the process of being, of being sad. Yes. The, the emotional, the physiological. Yes. Both, and that's yeah. and that's and that's okay. That's not that's not a, a thing that's defining right. me. It's not defining the decision I'm I'm making here. It's a it's a thing that I'm that I'm going through right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I do think that these emotions are important and necessary and are part of being a human being. My goal is not to to never have them again. My goal is to work skillfully with them when they arise. And I mean, it'd be fine if I was in a place where I didn't have anger, but we're humans. Maybe we can't. Hovering, hovering sounds fun. I don't know. Not motionless hovering, like more hover, hoverboard. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hovering sounds amazing. But yeah, the emotionless part, that was actually something that really turned me off from this kind of stuff when I first learned about it. So I was okay. like, I like having emotions. When I was preparing for this episode, I wasn't sure how to talk to you about this. I didn't want it to be giving you another list, another Buddhist list, mm -hmm. right? I really wanted it to make it about, mm, I asked myself, why is this important? Why would we even care about it? The phrase that Peacock used was unraveling the thread. He said, the moment you start looking at this experience, it's like a piece of 
he says wool in a sweater. And as soon as you pull that thread, it just starts to all come apart. And it's no longer this, you had said, I'm inside my experience and I can't get outside of my experience to notice yeah, that these things are happening. But when we start to see these aspects, we can say like, oh, there's a thread and kind of grasp at something and then like pull on it a little bit. And, and then the whole thing sort of starts to unravel the solidity of that emotion, the solidity of that it experience. unravels a little bit. You can kind of, you can kind of peek through. Yeah, you kind of peek through and start to realize, oh, right, I am experiencing anger in a big way, but that is not the entire universe. That is this this little me that is having this experience right now. And it's yeah. it's real, but it's in context. It can sometimes be seen in context. Maybe that's a way to talk about it. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. I like this model of mind function because I feel like it's enough to start to get our teeth into our experience and sort of start parsing out our experience so that we can begin to see more clearly where stimulus happens, where there's the gap, where we can take action and just bringing more skillfulness in general to our behavior and to our lives. Sure. Yeah. One of the other aspects of these mental models that I really like is I feel like they reduce a little bit of the guilt around behavior that maybe we don't like. Hmm. For me anyway, knowing that I have a body and senses that are hanging out in the environment and those senses are impacted. You know, I told the story about seeing the the billboard with the Jameson whiskey and then having this craving. Yeah. yeah. Recognizing that it wasn't my quote unquote fault. I didn't need to feel quote unquote guilty because I had this craving. Like it's just what happens when senses are impacted by the environment. For me, a lot of that guilt can fall away when I understand a little bit better how my mind works, what it evolved to do, and how it's responding to its environment. That makes sense. It's it's interesting to hear you say that because I'm I'm having the opposite. This topic that we're discussing makes me feel much more responsibility, mm. much that it is much more my ah, fault. Interesting. Um, to have these. Yeah, likings, dislikings, but cravings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel as though those are much more my responsibility because okay. of what we've been saying here. Can I offer something? Can I respond to that? Please do. So, yes, I hear what you're saying. Like all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to do something between stimulus and response. <laughs> oh no. Right. Here's a model. And this is exactly where. <laughs> right. One thing I would offer you is that there's a couple different ways to look at that, right? One is I, I'm doing it wrong and da, da, da. Another way to look at it is as freedom, as agency. I now know that there is agency here and I may not have a lot yet. I may just have the tiniest and that agency may literally just be looking at it and seeing it and then it whizzes by and I'm still where I was before. But now I have the agency to turn towards it and identify it. I was a facilitator for Judson Brewer's habit change program yeah. and he is huge on this idea of you don't have to do anything in the beginning. In the beginning, all you have to do is know. You can good, keep doing good, the behavior. Good first step. Yeah, the first step is just know. In fact, he says don't take any action. When he does, my speech is speeding up. He says don't take any action. When he has classes or had classes for smoking cessation, he would tell people, go home and smoke but pay very close attention to what it's like. And they say, what? You want me to go home and smoke? And he say, yes, but I want you to pay very close attention. So what I invite you to do is when that guilt comes up, see if it's okay to, oh, it's guilt again. Look, I'm, ha- look, I'm having guilt. Okay, yeah. 
what is you know what does that feel like? Well, oh, is guilt a thing that comes through this process? Absolutely. Mm, well, it's one of these thoughts that we were talking about. A thought can come in here, right? So your yeah. thought comes in, and then you have this vedna that's like, oh no, yeah, guilt, yeah. Mm, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. It's a little meta. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. That that seems powerful. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Let me think about it for a little bit. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Is there anything else? How has this landed for you? Is there something else that you haven't said that you'd like to say? I think I'd like to return to it in the future. I don't know if the listeners would be interested in that, but I feel like let it let it percolate. Yeah. And then and then talk about it again. Awesome. I'd love to. You won't be surprised to know. <laughs> Great. Thanks. <laughs> That's all I have. Listeners, thanks so much for being here with us and may you be well. Let's see if this translates to the microphone. Do we have a do we have a button on the caster? Do I have a press? drum roll? I don't know if I have a drum roll. Let's try all the buttons just to find out. I like this one. With sliding Facebook. down you're lower sliding. and lower in your chair until you're completely under the table. <laughs> you might say something clever and adorable and handsome like you always do. And uh, people no. would be very disappointed if I didn't capture that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was messing up phenomena and phenomenon. In the last episode. <laughs> Phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Mm-hmm.